The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles uh, this morning to Exodus chapter 31. I know there are maybe some of you who see this on the screen today, the tabernacle in the wilderness, and you say, well, you're kind of mixed up. Uh, That's a Sunday afternoon series, and that is our Sunday afternoon series, but today I'm going to preach the Sunday afternoon sermon here on this Sunday morning, and that all has to do with what happened a couple of weeks ago when we had to uh, stop our services in the middle of the sermon. And so I decided that I would finish that sermon that I started a couple of weeks ago in the evening service, since uh, you've heard already heard some of it, and we'll summarize the first part of it tonight in the, or this afternoon in the message, and then we'll go on and talk about uh, the comfort of Christ coming in the Sunday after, afternoon service. But t- this morning, this serves another purpose, too. If, if you haven't, most of you have been here on Sunday afternoons, but if you haven't, then you'll have an opportunity to, to just to hear a little bit about what we're talking about on Sunday afternoons as we look at the tabernacle that uh, God established in the wilderness as a place where Israel would worship him. So we turn today to the second book of Moses. This is Exodus, the second book of Moses. And Exodus refers to what? Well, that would be the Exodus, the exit of God's people from from Israel, from Egypt, and their bondage in Egypt. And Exodus chronicles the initial stages of the development of God's people into a nation. That is a free nation that was governed by God in its religious and its moral laws. It's all governed by God. It's church and state combined. Is that a tenet of God's law? Well, it is in one sense. Uh, Church state means religion and state. And Israel was a religious state. And the entire world will be returned to a religious state when King Jesus comes to rule in in a kingdom that's extensive over this entire world. So we can think about this as we study the development of Israel's worship system, that their system was perfect because it was designed by God. And if it was followed, as God wanted them to follow, it would yield a perfect society because God is always perfectly just. There are no inequities in the way that God deals in his treatment of man. So I want to continue our study of the tabernacle in the wilderness today by considering those that were chosen by God to do the work of constructing the tabernacle. God's perfect plan considered every detail And we've learned that God always provides the means to accomplish his work. Whatever God needs to be done, God will make sure that it's done. So if you'll look at uh, Exodus 31, beginning in verse number 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding, and in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, to devise cunning works, to work in gold, and in silver, and in brass, 
and in cutting of stones to set them, and in carving of timber to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, behold, I have given with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach of the tribe of Dan, and in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted, I have put wisdom that they may make all that I have commanded thee. The tabernacle of the congregation and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is thereupon and all the furniture of the tabernacle and the table and his furniture and the pure candlestick with all his furniture and the altar of incense and the altar of burning with all his furniture and the laver and his foot and the cloths of service and the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons to minister in the priest's office and the anointing oil and sweet incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded thee, shall they do. Two years ago, we did a, an extensive study of the Ten Commandments. That was a series that ran 40 sermons in which, which we examined each of the commandments uh, very carefully to make sure that we understood God's intent in each of those commandments. Those commandments are God's moral law. The moral law never changes. It codifies what God wrote on the human heart, and it's the law by which all people will be judged in the final day. There are some who don't understand that as badly as they hate the Bible, our government uses the Bible every day in many of its decisions. Our justice system is built upon the moral laws that God gave in his government. That is, our justice system is built on things that we read in the Ten Commandments. Now, this morning's subject concerns the ceremonial law, not the moral law, but the ceremonial law that involves Israel's sacrificial system. And these are the laws that showed Israel how, they, how God is to be approached, how God is to be worshipped, and these things that we read in the Old Testament are types in which we look for sermons and ways that we can make New Testament applications of what the Old Testament teaches. Now at first, these Old Testament types were intended just for the people of Israel, but they have antitypes, what we call an antitype. That is, the fulfillment of the Old Testament type is seen in the New Testament in the worship of Jesus Christ through the church. We need to recognize that God is the same God in both of the Testaments, that God is Lord over all, and He was visually manifested. God was visually manifested in the incarnation of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, today we take up a, another part of the preparation of the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness. And this tabernacle was the sanctuary, the place of meeting for God's people and we've already seen in our studies about the stewardship of God's people, how they brought all the necessary materials that God required to build this sanctuary for him. And it was a magnificent place. It was a beautiful place, although not on the outside did it look beautiful, but it certainly did reflect the majesty and the glory of God on the inside. And so as we look at this, the, the children of Israel brought all of these things to build the tabernacle and they, they needed someone now to physically construct that building. They need someone to take all that has been collected and make this structure and the furnishings that are to be used in the tabernacle worship. Now, for example, in verse number 3, God said that he called Bezalel from the tribe of Judah and he filled him with the Spirit of God in all wisdom and understanding and knowledge. 
So God gave him the ability to take the raw materials, all these things that were brought, and with fine craftsmanship, he made all that God required. Now, those of you that have been with us in our studies, I think by now you are learned students of typology. And you may recognize that when God said this, that I have chosen Bezalel, that Bezalel becomes a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where it says that he was filled with wisdom and understanding, that is exactly the same thing that the Word of God says about Jesus Christ who would come into the world to save us from our sins. That he would be filled with wisdom and understanding. Or as Psalm 45 verse 7 and Hebrews verse, uh, chapter 1 verse 9 says, that he was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows. And so as with all parts of the tabernacle, when we study this, we never stray away from the person who is central to this worship. These are all pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. They depict for us the splendor and the majesty of Jesus. And, and I might say this as well. How can we ever tire of speaking of Jesus? How do we ever get tired of talking about Him? In every sermon, the focus must go there. We want Jesus to shine through everything that we say in this pulpit as we teach the Word of God. But you recognize that when we teach, not every sermon that I preach is about redemption. Not everything that I tell you is about salvation. Not every Sunday morning do I speak to you about the death of Christ on the cross. Those aren't always the main topic. There are many other subjects that we discuss. But each of the subjects that we speak of here have some relation to Jesus. And that's because Christ can be found on every page of the Scripture. Everything that's in the Bible somehow is going to be related to Jesus Christ. He's present on every page. And so when we teach the Bible, we need to be able to see Jesus. And if we don't see Him, then we've missed our calling, we've missed our point, we've missed the purpose of why we're here today. That is to worship Jesus Christ. Now today I'd like to discuss with you the men that God chose to build the tabernacle. This is an example for us. These are highly, these were highly skilled craftsmen that were given their abilities by God and every part that they made was a stunning display of Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about them, two men, particularly, that God chose for the building of the tabernacle, we, we must also think about Moses. We think about who Moses was, how that he grew up in Egypt at a time when many of the magnificent structures of the Egyptian empire were built. Some of the pyramids were built during the time of Moses. And Moses grew up in Pharaoh's household, and no doubt that he was taught some of the engineering skills that it took to build some of those great uh, magnificent structures that they built in Egypt. But God wasn't interested in the building skills of Egyptians. God is the architect of his building, and so he chooses and gifts men, other and others, with skills that he wants them to have, and he wants the people that he chooses to have a passion for those skills, that have a desire to use those skills, a fervent desire to satisfy God as they work for him. And we work for God for the eternal reward that he promises. So it's not just the satisfaction that what we can do is to create some beautiful structure, some magnificent thing that people will admire. 
And similarly, when God builds His church, He chooses people that have a burning desire to glorify Him and His Son, Jesus Christ. And so as we work in God's church, the, the purpose here is not to exalt you or to exalt me, not to lift up what man does, but we have a passion and desire to magnify Christ. And so God chooses leaders and He gives them ability, He gives them gifts to grow His church and to grow His people for the glory of Christ. Now the world may not recognize the value of what we do here, just as someone stumbling upon the tabernacle in the wilderness would never understand the beauty of it. Now you see in the picture that we have for you right now, if you can look at that, that, that structure there from the outside, that doesn't look very much like a beautiful building. You couldn't tell what was on the inside of that building from looking at the outside. But there is the magnificent glory of God that's shown in that place. The beauty of Christ shown there is just dazzling. Now, I'd like for us to, to notice first today as we, as we look at this passage, number one is that God selects the workmen. God selects the workmen. In two places of the text, we see the selection. In verses 1 and 2, Bezalel is chosen. In verse number 6, Aholiab was selected to be his helper. And then also in verse number 6, there are others that are chosen to work under the direction of Bezalel and Aholiab. So we look at verse number 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. Verse 6, And I, behold, I have given with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. And in the hearts of all that are wise-hearted, I have put wisdom, that they may make all that I have commanded thee. I don't want you to miss. The scripture says they were chosen by God. With forethought and determination, they were selected. And of course, that shows once again that God's election of people, specifically by name, is found everywhere in the scriptures. Now, I know there are some preachers that say that the Bible does not teach election. But I find if you're not looking for it, you're going to stumble over it before you get two steps in the Bible study. Election is taught in type, just like other great doctrines of the faith are taught in type as they're seen in the Old Testament. For example, justification is taught in type by Abraham when he left Ur of Chaldea. The Bible says that Abraham was justified because he believed God's promise that he would make him a great nation. His justification was proved when he took Isaac up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice him, not knowing how God would preserve him, but fully believing that he would. Sanctification is taught in type by the ceremonial laws and the cleansing rituals in Israel. It's taught in the selection of priests by type. The selection of God's, God's demand for people to be, uh, that He's chosen to be holy as He is holy. And you've already seen through our studies how that in type we see doctrines like imputation and expiation and propitiation that are taught in the scapegoat offering of Israel. Also, substitutionary atonement is taught in type in that offering. So here we see in this text that there is another doctrine that is taught in type, and this is the type of God's eternal election and the very personal nature of it. The Bible says, God said, I have chosen Bezalel by name. 
Now that's very specific. That's the same way in which God chose Jeremiah. It's the same way that Paul was selected. It's the same way that John the Baptist was selected. And God did all of this. God did all of this choosing without conversation because God does not check with us to see if we like the plan. God doesn't check with us to see if we're going to agree with what he says or that plan is acceptable. I don't see how Bible students miss this, and yet we hear it all the time. People will say, God does not choose. God doesn't know what we're going to do until we do it. Or that God looks down through time to see what we will do, and based upon what we will do, then God chooses us to work for Him or to be saved. I think that's nonsense. I think it's all nonsense. I mean, we look even at the selection of God's own Son that we find in the Scriptures. Jesus was also chosen. In Isaiah's prophecy, God says in Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, or that is, the one that I have chosen, the one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Now that sounds very much like what we read in Exodus 31. God said, I have chosen Bezalel by name. And so that becomes, that choice becomes a type of the selection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who builds his sanctuary, the one who builds his tabernacle, the one who builds a church, the one who builds a dwelling place, as the word of God says, not made with human hands. So he calls, he fills with the Spirit, he puts wisdom and knowledge into us to hear and to respond to the call. So we should be able to see as we read through the Bible that God is always consistent with the language. There's always a language of divine selection everywhere in the scripture. This is a permeating doctrine. If we look at the people that God has chosen, we see it working out according to God's plan. Was Abraham looking for God? The answer is no. Abraham wasn't looking for God. God found him and God chose him and God appointed him. To be the father of many nations. Was Moses looking for God? The answer is no. Moses was not looking for God. Did he have any thoughts that he, he would deliver God's people? When one day he stumbled upon a burning bush and he turned aside to see the strange phenomenon of a, of a bush that was burning and wasn't consumed? Was Moses thinking of God and what he would do? No, God chose him. Did Samuel choose to be a judge in Israel? Or was it God, as the Bible says, who called him by name in the middle of the night when the Bible says he did not know God? He didn't know who God was. Was Saul of Tarsus looking to become a Christian on the road to Damascus when God blinded him with his glory and he said, You are chosen for me. Now, interestingly, that statement was made to Ananias before Paul even had any idea or knew what God said. How does anyone miss this? God selects. God chooses according to his good pleasure and for his glory. He chooses those that are saved, and he chooses those that are saved to serve him. So God calls people. That's not a difficult doctrine in Scripture to discern. It's everywhere. Paul and others taught this doctrine without apology. So why is it so controversial? Well, that's, that's a, this, this whole thing, this is a, another doctrine for another day, although I don't stray very far away from it, maybe because the scriptures don't stray far from it. 
Now, let's notice the definition of this call. First of all, we see that it is a divine call. Verse number 30. Uh, Exodus 35, 30, rather. And Moses said unto the children of Israel, See the Lord. See the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what Bezalel's occupation was before he was called. There's nothing said here about his relationships. Now, we do note that the Scripture says that he was the, he's the grandson of Hur. That was that great man who, with Aaron, uh, held up Moses' hands at the battle of Amalek. So perhaps Bezalel had some of his grandfather's character standing strong when other Israelites might have been weak in the faith. But other than that, we have no insight into this man Bezalel. The Bible doesn't just doesn't tell us much about him. But we do know that he was among two million or more Israelites that were not chosen for this work. And he was singled out. This man is singled out, and it was God's choice to do it, not his. Now, friends, God doesn't run a consulting firm. He makes decisions. He plans our lives. And that's as it should be, because most people really don't care very much for God's plans. And without divine intervention, the Bible teaches that we would never choose to follow God's plan. Certainly, Paul had no intentions of preaching the gospel that he tried to destroy. Our salvation is determined as is our service. And we are saved to serve. And as surely as God brings people to the knowledge of salvation so they know Jesus Christ, He will also show us the avenue of service that He has for us. Now, I don't necessarily recommend this, but in the early days of our country, Baptist people in the early days of this country, many of them did not believe in training ministers. They believed that what God would do was to raise men and he would take care of the training. Now you see, it, it, it takes more than an education to do God's work. There must be a divine gifting to do God's work. Now there, there, there may have been other artisans among the two million people in Israel. Probably there were. And perhaps there wasn't any training necessary for them. But God didn't choose them. His work is specialized. What he wanted done is a special work and he puts the right kind of wisdom and knowledge into a person to do the job that he wants done. I heard an interesting comment a while back that there are some who believe that a preacher should not be in the pulpit and a preacher, a pastor should not lead a church unless he has a doctorate. That a doctorate, that's required for ministry. If you can put some letters in front of your name or after your name, then that legitimizes the ministry. You know, I seem to remember that the scribes were doctors of the law. And Jesus said they were hypocrites. I believe there are plenty of religious leaders that will tout the doctrine, but they're also fools when it comes to the knowledge of the Word of God. They're far from the Word of God as many of those scribes that Jesus condemned. Now, I'm not saying that we criticize good, learned men. Oh, I admire 
and, and, I, and I read after, and I study after men who are learned in the Scriptures, and, I, and I'm happy that, that we have uh, their knowledge that we, can, that we can go to and we can listen to and learn. But if you depend on a person's title to give you confidence, and if that's the thing that you're hanging your hat on, whether the preacher is right or is wrong, then you've already been fooled. Because what you've got to do, you've got to investigate the man and who he is and what he believes and see if he's following God's plan from the Scriptures. Now, understand, understanding the faith and being qualified to preach is not, qualified to preach the gospel is not in a degree that's conferred by man's institutions. Now, it may help, it does help after the man has been chosen by God, after God calls, but it's not educational institutions that gift men for ministry. Educational institutions are not to ordain men to ministry. That's the work of the Lord's church. And that work is given by the Holy Spirit. And if you have the credentials of the Holy Spirit, that's all you need. That's the necessary thing. Is the Holy Spirit the one who calls? Now next, we can define this selection as a distinct call. In verses 4 and 5, the work is described. What are these workmen to do? To devise cunning works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass and in cutting of stones to set them and in carving of timber to work in all manner of workmanship. When God calls... He'll tell you what he wants you to do. I returned to Paul on the road to Damascus. Jesus said to him, go into the city and you will be told what to do. Now it's interesting that a few verses later, we see the Lord speaking to Ananias, the one who was to, to tell Paul what to do. And the Lord said to him, I will show you how great things he will suffer for my name's sake. That kind of job description, suffering, is enough to scare you into turning around and going the opposite direction. God knows that you'll never do what he asks. He knows that you can't do what he asks in the energy of your flesh. You're not going to stay in his service when the qualifications of it and the activities of it, that's suffering. You're not going to stay in the service of God for suffering. But when God calls you and he puts in you that desire and the stamina to do the work, you will do it because that's God's distinct purpose for you. Now we learn in the New Testament that God gives people differently in the service of the church. In 1 Corinthians, the Bible describes the Lord's church as his body. The church is his body. And it talks to us there about how every part of the body is not the same. A body doesn't need ten noses. And it doesn't need twenty eyes. A body doesn't need fifteen ears. And it says if every part is an eye, then how do we hear? And if every part is an ear, how would we smell? Oh, but we do notice in the church that there are plenty of mouths. Everybody wants to talk. Few people want to listen. Many want the pastor's job to do the talking, but they don't want to deal with all the headaches that are created when you say too much. God gives people for certain areas, and what we need to do is to stay in our lane, in the area of our gifting. 
So does that mean that nobody but the pastor can get into the pulpit to preach? No, it doesn't mean that because God can gift other men, not just pastors to preach the word of God, but nobody but the pastor should be the pastor. Nobody but the pastor should do the work of the pastor. Now, there are others that can preach the word of God, but to lead God's people, to shepherd God's people, the church has only one pastor or a plurality of pastors, of elders, if that's what the church desires. In Ephesians 4, verse 7, Paul wrote, But unto every one, it says, every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So gifts are given by God according to the measure of His grace. And when you step outside your job, you won't have the grace to do all that you need to do. And so those things that you do outside of the grace of God are things that are done in the energy of your flesh. But I would also remind you of this, that God has work for every person in the church to do. Every member of the church has a work to do, and you are required to do that work. You are to do your job, because if you don't do your job, then it means that somebody who's not gifted for that work has to fill in. And that's not the most efficient way for God's work to be done. I was thinking about uh, Steve Bianchini when he was working on these, these lights up here. I went up on the lift to, to hand Steve uh, parts. Steve had the skills. You don't want me up there cutting the wires and hooking stuff up. And so I was the parts boy. All that I did was just hand Steve the stuff because he's the expert. I can't do his job. I believe that God gives his people. I believe that our deacons receive a call from God. I've seen some that have been nominated to become deacons who turn down the job because they don't think that they're gifted enough. But then somehow God changes their minds and when they, they find out that when they get into that job that God gives them the grace they need to do it. So I tell our, our men who are nominated to, to serve in the office of the deacon that not everybody is chosen for it. You might be nominated for it, but you may not be chosen for it by God. God has to prepare the man for what he will see because there can be great disappointment when you start to get behind the inner workings of the church, when you get to see what goes on in the background scenes that you can't see in public and you see the people that you have to deal with. There are many times when you would just rather squash those people like a bug and be done with them. But God teaches us to be patient with His people, to instruct His people, to help His people. And the, and the deacon has to learn that. There's a lot of stuff that goes on that I don't even want to tell you, you don't want to hear. But we're trying to bring people along and teach them the truth and help them as they serve the Lord. God will gift you for what He wants you to do. So how do you know when God's calling? How do you know when, when God wants you to do a job? God tells you. How? Well, he doesn't come knocking on your door. He doesn't leave a certified letter in your mailbox to tell you that you're chosen. There isn't an audible voice that you hear from heaven. So how do you know? Well, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit witnesses with our spirit. There's something that goes on in the inside of that person that's called by God. Alino was telling me some weeks ago, about a man that was struggling in a job in his church, and the man was asked to step down. And so how was it that this man got into the job, and why did he fail? It was because God didn't call him. 
Now the testimony of the man was that the pastor called him and told him that it was God calling him. And then the pastor told him to step down because it didn't work out. So whose fault was that? Well, I'd say that was the pastor's fault. You see, folks, I may advise you and tell you how to listen to God, but you're never going to hear me tell you that God told me that you're called to be a preacher or that you're called to be a deacon or you're called to be anything else. The only thing I know about God's calling for you is the will of God for all of His people. What are those things that are the will of God for all of His people? I can tell you that. God's will is known through the Scriptures. 99% of God's will is found in the Scriptures. I would say 100%, and you'll, I'll explain. There, there, there's the 1%. The 1%, though, that is specific to you, you've got to get from God, not me. So how is the channel? What is that channel of receiving info from God? It's not dreams and visions. God's not going to appear to you in the night. You're not going to see Jesus standing at the foot of your bed. God doesn't speak like that as he did to Moses and Bezalel and Aholiab back in the Old Testament. No, if you want to hear from God, you've got to hear through his word. So that means you've got to know God's Word. You've got to know enough of God's Word that you can pray and the Holy Spirit will begin to witness with your spirit. And He impresses you with a call to the work. And then when that call comes through, I believe that the church will also recognize that call and agree with it. Now let me address that point just briefly. If your life is a mess and you've never shown any semblance of a response to obey God, you probably don't want to come to me and say, Pastor, I think the Lord's calling me to preach behind that pulpit up there. You probably don't want to say that to me. I'll say to you, I, I think you need to go back and listen to that still, small voice again and find out if it's not your ego. And find out if maybe it's not your wife that's calling you, not God. Now, if you want to hear God speak, you've got to be active already. If you want to hear God speak, you've got to be doing what you know to do before God will gift you with what you don't know how to do. And if you're not using the gift that God gave you now, you're not going to use a special one that He gives you tomorrow. So my advice for Christians who desire to find out God's will is to start with what you are supposed to do and what you know to do. Then you are to get into something that the church is doing. And just don't go out there and choose the thing that's most appealing. The, the, the one that gives you the most recognition, that job that puts your name out there. No, you've got to be willing to do anything. And that's when God opens the door for your gift. Now we think about the Apostle Paul and, and uh, how he became a missionary to Macedonia. That's what we're studying uh, in our Thessalonian series. Uh, the Thessalonican church was a, was a part of that, that area of the world called Macedonia and Achaia. So Paul was just doing what God told him to do in the place where he was. Then he started making plans to extend his ministry into a certain area. But then God stopped him. And God said, I don't want you to go there. I've got another place for you to go. And so God changed Paul's direction. And out of that came some of the most memorable events of Paul's ministry. If I were to ask you, how many events of the first missionary journey of Paul do you remember? Probably you don't remember any of them. You probably couldn't even tell me right now what happened in Paul's first missionary journey. But how many of you could tell me things that happened in the second missionary journey? 
Now, the Holy Spirit was involved, but when he specifically spoke to Paul in the Scriptures and said, I want you to go to Macedonia and Achaia to preach to those people, can you think of any events that came out of Macedonia and Achaia? I certainly can. That's where we get the story of the Philippian jailer. And in that story, there's where you read, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? There you read the story of Lydia. Well, the Bible says God opened her heart to receive the things or to attend to the things that were spoken by Paul. There in, that, in that, those countries of Macedonia and Achaia is where we find Berea. That's where we find Bereans. Those are the people that search the scriptures to see if the things that Paul said were so. In that region we find the church at Thessalonica, which was one of the greatest joys of Paul's ministry. In that country of Achaia, we find Athens. There we find Paul on Mars Hill in one of his most famous experiences of Acts chapter 17 when he preached on Mars Hill and preached that message to those people about the unknown God. We remember those things. The Holy Spirit was in those things. Now be ready to be used of God and God will use you. Take on any task. It doesn't matter. Be willing. And God will give you greater opportunities. I don't know what Bezalel did before God called him. But I have confidence that among those two million others that he was already a faithful man just like his granddaddy, her. So that's our first lesson from this chapter. God selects the workman. Now let me show you something else. Number two is that God equips the workman. Once again, we refer to verse number three. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and in understanding and in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. Now, in the next verses, God told Bezalel, or told Moses what Bezalel was to do. Now, this is fascinating work because it seems impossible that one man could do so much. He was appointed to a fantastic work, and he couldn't do it except God gave him the ability when God calls you to do a work, He will equip you to do it. A few days ago, I had a conversation with someone about our missionary to East Africa, Wilson Mongo. And honestly, I can't understand how he does all that he does. I couldn't do it. I know that I couldn't do it. I labor to get done the small amount of work that I do. And yet, he runs everywhere. He goes through in several different countries. In Africa, there are dozens of churches and mission projects. He's doing something everywhere, every day, it seems like. And I know that I couldn't do that. And I think that he might tell you that he sits down at night when he gets the chance, if he does, and he looks back on his day and he says, how did I do all of that? And then, how am I going to do it all tomorrow? And he knows it's the power of God in him. You see, God makes sure His workers get the job done when they depend on Him. Well, what does God do for the workmen? Well, let's finish with this this morning. God gives them the capacity to serve. Now, we understand the remarkable ability of Bezalel by examining Israel's occupation in Egypt. After the death of Joseph, there was a new Pharaoh that came to power before Joseph, before I should say, Joseph was the, was the benefactor of Israel. The pharaohs knew him. They respected the history and the relationship of, of Joseph to the Egyptian empire. But then there was a new dynasty that came and, 
and the new Pharaoh had no relationship with Joseph. Israel was living in the favored spot in Egypt. They were in the Nile Delta in the lush green land of Goshen. And there they prospered and they multiplied. Eventually the Egyptians became very concerned that there were too many Hebrews that were living among them. And they were afraid that, that Israel, the Hebrews, would become confederate with their enemies and they would stage a coup and overthrow them. So it, uh, Pharaoh put Israel to work. He put him, them uh, on his massive building projects and he beat them down and made them slaves. And you know the story of how he wanted to kill all the male babies as soon as they were born and that would stifle the population of the Hebrews. And that led to the miraculous saving of Moses and the little ark of bulrushes that was put into the river. I read something the other day about this that someone said, no, that story has to be a myth. It must be a myth because Moses was sure to be eaten by crocodiles if they put him into the river. And that's kind of interesting concerning all the miracles that already happened in the book of Genesis, if you want to read there. And Pharaoh's daughter, have you noticed in the story, didn't seem to be too concerned about being eaten by crocodiles when she went down to the river to take a bath. And so I kind of think that the Pharaohs who could build these massive pyramids probably figured out a way that they could take a bath without being eaten by a crocodile. But that's not the point of the lesson. That's just free material that gets thrown in. You don't have to pay for so, so going on, Israel was put under taskmasters to make bricks for building projects. So Israel's occupation, well, they, were, they were sheep herders and cattle herders and all of that, but here they've been made slaves and now they've been turned into brick makers and bricklayers. Now you fast forward the story a few decades and now Israel is out of that sad situation. And here in, here in the book of Exodus, they're, they're out of Egypt. They're in the wilderness of Sinai. And Moses came down from the mountain with the plans for the tabernacle. And there we find there are fine works of metallurgy that are required. The ability of silversmiths was required. There are fine works of gold. And there are, there are jewelers that are required. Precious stones need to be cut and put into settings. You may remember when we studied this part of it, that we, we talked about the ouches that are on the priest's breastplate. The ouch, that is, a, that is a setting. And you remember I talked about how those were settings like Jason and Sheila put precious stones in gold settings. And then there was the ability needed to, to make carvings. There's furniture that needs to be made. Now, you know the, uh, the fellow, I think I was thinking about this, the fellow that made this pulpit. It amazed me at how he was able to put this together. And if you come up here and look at it very closely, the, the seams are put together with precision. All the measurements are, are right. And then getting the, the, the paint, how, how well that that's done to put on this pulpit. And that's just very small and insignificant compared to the stunning work of the tabernacle that's all done without the aid of modern machinery. And then you remember the cherubim that are made to put on top of the, of the Ark of the Covenant. How are those made? Well, God said, I want you to take one lump of gold and I want you to make two cherubim, each standing on each side of the, of the mercy seat, a flat area, make all of that of gold and make it out of one piece of gold. Beat it out of one piece of gold and make those beautiful cherubim. And then there was fine needlework that was required to sew the priest garments and the tapestries and the curtains and the ceiling of the tabernacle were woven into that ceiling was the images of cherubim. This is all very highly specialized work. 
gold and silver and brass and jewels and needlework and fine carpentry. And what does Moses see when he comes down from the mountain? He has all these specialized types of labor that are required. What does he say? I think he must have said, God, how am I supposed to do this? All that I have is a bunch of bricklayers. Now, don't get me wrong. Bricklaying is a fine profession. I don't know how to lay bricks. You don't want me to come to your house and lay brick on your house. You don't want me to put new tile in your bathroom. And you don't want me to put new flooring in your house. Those things take a skill that I can't do. And I wonder, I was talking about Steve a moment, a moment ago, I wonder about Steve being Keeney. How does he do so many things? How is it that people have all of these talents, and if I lay brick, I mash my fingers. When I cut wires, I get electrocuted. If I put down a floor, you're going to fall over it. Well, bricklaying, that, that's a talented profession. Stone masonry is its own art. But I've got to tell you, if you want a beautiful diamond that's put into a setting of, beautiful, of a beautiful gold ring, you're not going to look in the yellow pages for a bricklayer. When Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel ceiling, they didn't interview Manny and Moe, the house painters. You know, I had a guy that painted my house who was named Manny, but I didn't commission him to paint a portrait of me too. This is Moses' labor force. This is what he has to work with. These are guys that are honed through years of bricklaying. I suppose there's some latent talent underneath all of that, but Moses must have thought, how do I get all of this done? God was prepared for that as he always is. And so before Moses could object, God said, I've got this. See, I have chosen Bezalel and his helper Aholiab. These things that seem to be problems to us are not problems to God. Did you know that? God does not have problems. God has solutions. God has a solution to every problem that we have. And so when God calls for something, there's no worry that it will get done because whatever God wants, God accomplishes. So he gives his spirit to his people. He puts in them wisdom and the knowledge and the ability to get that job done. So God will never call anyone to do a job that he doesn't equip them to do. Does that mean that everyone that God gives a job will instantly know what to do and they'll never need to train for it? No, that's not what it means because God has a method to get his people to the place and the time that he needs them. Now let me close with this and we'll take up more in, in the next time in a, in a Sunday afternoon sermon. But when I got up there on that lift with Steve to cut the wires on those old lights and to put the new ones in, you can trust me that if I said to Steve, have you ever done this before? And he said to me, no, I never have. I'm not staying on that lift when both of us can get electrocuted and blown off of it. You see, what God did was that, that Steve had learned things along the way. Steve had developed skills along the way. And God knew long before Steve did that those lights needed to be changed. And so at the right time, God brought us someone who says, I can do that. And he came to the church and he said, I, I can get up there. I can do that. I know how to do that. And I'm telling you that God has a church with dozens and dozens of requirements and there's all sorts of work to be done. There are pastors and preachers and musicians and teachers and workers and landscapers and cooks and cleaners. There's all sorts of work to be done because God has a diversified church and he has many, many different parts of his body. And God gifts us to do all the work and make sure that it gets done. 
So what I'm telling you today, let's just simply trust God to get done what needs to be done. And the most important thing for you is to be ready and available when God calls. And when he tells you, I've got work for you to do. And he will if you're a member of the church. If you're a part of his church, you're not going to escape this because he has work for all of us to do. And so when he says, I have work for you to do, don't make an excuse. Don't say, I can't do that. Yes, you can if you surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Glorify him through your service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you for your word and the truths that we learn from it. I ask you, Lord, that you would help us to be willing servants that you would uh, gift us and uh, enable us to do the work that you want, which we know that you will do, but then, Lord, give us the heart that we will do it. We know we, are, we have stubborn hearts. We have resistant hearts. But every person saved by the blood of Jesus Christ ought to be grateful with much gratitude, say, Lord, what will you have me to do? And then go about and do your work. Speak to our hearts today, Lord. We thank you for your mercy and your grace in saving our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.